This is The Backbench. Your source of political news, alongside interviews with leading politicians, activists, and academics. From the University of Edinburgh. Hosted by myself, Jonas Dean. And me, Carter Wickham. Order! Order! Welcome to The Backbench. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Backbench Hustings in preparation for the upcoming 2021 Scottish parliamentary elections. Tonight, we are coming to you live through Facebook, or maybe you're watching this after the Scottish leaders' debate on STV. This year has been a strange year for so many groups of people. One in particular are students who have had the fate of their education rest very much with the hands of the government. They've had exams cancelled, universities in lockdown, students waiting for guidelines to see if, when, and how they can return to university. And as such, before May 6th approaches, which is the Scottish parliamentary election, we've taken now to ask five exceptional candidates about issues facing students, both following on from the pandemic and in the long-term future. So for tonight, to go through how everything is going to work, each candidate will be given a th- three minutes to make opening statements. We'll then move on to a series of questions addressing a range of student issues. After that, you, the audience, will be given the opportunity to ask any questions you want. Please, throughout the debate, put them down in the comments and we will get to them as soon as we can. And after that, each candidate will be given two minutes to make a closing statement. Now, to go through the candidates, today we are joined by Angus Robertson from the SNP, Carol Ford from the Liberal Democrats, Kate Nevins from the Green Party, Miles Briggs from the Conservatives, and Sarah Boyack from Labour. Throughout the debate tonight, make sure that you uh, spread the word about this by using hashtag Backbench Hustings and tagging the Backbench social media and even the candidates. So without further ado, I will start with the first question. So in recent weeks, we have seen the end of this wave of COVID out of the many waves that we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic. As the steady reopening of society continues, Many students wonder what will be the economic situation for them when they graduate. If elected, what would your party do to ensure economic prosperity and further job opportunities for graduates? So going alphabetically, we will start with Angus. Yeah. Yeah. And just to clarify, it's three minutes for each. And if you could weave in kind of that question to who you are and what you stand for. Well, thank you very much uh, for the invitation to join you all. Um, uh, Unusually, I'm um, taking part in a podcast and hustings from a car. There's a first for uh, for everybody Uh, this week um, because of the change in rules. Candidates are now able to go out and about and campaign. And I'm joining you from uh, Sunny Gorgie. Um, I'm the SNP candidate in, in Edinburgh Central, the most marginal seat in Uh, the capital, um, a 610 vote thin majority uh, seat held by the Conservatives whose candidate uh, at the last election, Ruth Davidson, has given up on democratic politics to move to the House of Lords. Um, Many of you listening or watching this debate should realize that your vote really counts in this election. Um, If you live in Edinburgh Central, very obviously, I would be delighted if you voted uh, for me, but use both of your votes for the uh, SNP. Uh, In doing so, you would then be re-electing a government that really cares about students, about young people, and about Scotland's democracy. Incidentally, a 
pro-European party that has staunchly opposed Brexit from the start. This obviously is a very important issue for many students who are being denied the opportunities of Erasmus now. Um, this election is, is, uh, has big questions um, that, that face uh, all of you and they face all of the political parties as well as we try and bounce back out of COVID, uh, dealing with the challenge as seriously and responsibly uh, as possible. Um, and that is something that the SNP is absolutely committed to, as it is to Scottish democracy. And we believe the people of this country should have a vote uh, about the future of the country. Uh, and if we are returned uh, in a majority pro-independent Scottish Parliament, you will be able to vote together with everybody else about Scotland's future. And I uh, embrace the future of Scotland being a member state in the European Union, restoring all of your citizenship rights uh, as EU citizens, with Scotland taking its place at the top table as a normal European uh, country. I'll, I'll leave my three minutes at, uh, at that, give the other um, colleagues on the panel an opportunity to make their opening statements and look forward to hearing from uh, all of you taking part in the podcast about the issues that matter for you. But your vote really, really matters. If you aren't going to vote for me or my party, please do vote because democracy does really matter. On, on the other hand, do vote SNP. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Angus. I think maybe the first candidate uh, in a long time to be making a speech uh, from his car. So uh, hopefully we'll have you stick around and not drive off after this. Carol Ford from the Liberal Democrats. So three minutes to you starting now. Well, I'll just say a few words about myself and then I'll come on to the question that was posed about uh, the economy. I'm, uh, had, I've had a long career in education, uh, finishing up with 14 years as a secondary head teacher. So I have spent my life trying to open up opportunities for young people. In fact, it might predispose some of you against me to say that I probably co-wrote the math book that you used to get your higher maths. But moving on from that, um, if, I, if I look specifically at the question that I was asked to include in this opening comment about the economic recovery, there is no doubt at all that young people, school, school age pupils and students have really been at the sharp end of this pandemic because of the disruption to their education. And that's something that the government is going to have to try and do something about. But the, what, the, the group that's probably most concerned is the group that's, put, that's about to leave school and perhaps be looking for training or a job and graduates who are coming out into the economy. And there is no doubt that people who graduate at a time of recession can feel the effects of that for quite a long time. There's a long shadow from the economic recession in 2008 and many graduates would be aware of that. So that's something that we think the Scottish government should be focusing on. And it's certainly something that the Liberal Democrats will focus on. We think that the economy needs to be planned in a more organized fashion. And we have to focus on the areas of the, of the economy that need our attention. And we would identify that at the moment as the high street businesses, the hospitality sector, and the green economy. And these are the three areas of focus for us to try and get the economy moving and create the kind of high quality jobs that are sustainable and will actually give people long-term uh, careers in Scotland. Now, just last week, Sir Tom Hunter made the comment that politicians were actually very good at spending money, but they weren't so good at creating money. And I think that's something that Scotland really, really needs to pay attention to. Because the other 
fact that was quoted was that currently Scotland's uh, GDP is 58% of the Republic of Ireland's. And that's not because Ireland is independent. It's because we have not focused on trying to get our industries moving in the right direction in a sustainable fashion. We have spent millions of pounds thrown at specific companies in particular circumstances with no long-term plan how that money will actually follow through into sustainable jobs. So we would focus on particularly the green economy, green energy, uh, electric vehicle, uh, vehicle infrastructure, uh, retrofitting homes, and tackle the climate crisis at the same time as forcing the economy forward. We do have specific plans for things to help graduates into jobs, and that might come up later in the conversation. All right, thank you very much for that, Carol. And now we move on to Kate Nevins from the Scottish Greens. Uh, thank you very much, Carter. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Kate Nevins. I'm standing for the Scottish Greens on the Lothian list. Uh, I'm third on our green list after our current MSP, Alison Johnson, and our co-leader, Lorna Slater. And I'm really excited to be topping the list as part of an all-women team at the top of our list. Um, Thank you so much for inviting me this evening. Um, I'm originally from Norwich, which rather excitingly is now known as the hometown of Bimini from Drag Race. Uh, used to be known as the hometown of Alan Partridge, so we're moving up in the world. Um, I first moved to Edinburgh as a student in 2001, and then I was lucky enough to be able to move back again five years ago and make Scotland my permanent home. As my day job, I work with charities and community centres uh, on rights and equality issues here in Scotland, but also with activist groups internationally, uh, particularly youth groups and women's groups in the Middle East. So this election comes at a time of unprecedented threats to our rights, our well-being, our environment and our future. As we recover from the pandemic, the Greens want to see our politics done differently with people and planet at the forefront. And as uh, was talked about in the introduction, this pandemic has really deepened inequalities in our education system, and it's created new barriers to learning, and it's negatively impacted the rights and well-being of students and young people, along with a variety of other groups. Uh, with many students facing the horrors of the grading and regrading scandal in both Scotland and students that have come up from England, um, then coming to university to find themselves treated appallingly by student accommodation, uh, forced to pay rent for accommodation they couldn't or needn't use, uh, and then very little access to mental health support. So as we emerge from the pandemic, we need to make sure that we don't return to business as usual. Um, and as Greens, we want to make sure everyone, including students and young people, has access to free higher education, regardless of their income or background, and a financial support system that meets the cost of living, um, access to affordable, safe and warm housing, uh, to meaningful, well-paid work when the time comes, and also access to better, ment better mental health support, including access to nature and green spaces. And a big part of that uh, is uh, widening access to higher education and improving financial support for students. So some of the, just very briefly, some of the green things the Greens would do would be to um, make sure that students are better supported financially during the summer months. Being a student doesn't stop in June and then start again in September. 
um, with an opportunity to get bursaries and extended loan payments over the summer. We also want to ensure that estranged students, who are some of the most, so people that are students are estranged from their families, who can be the most vulnerable to student poverty, have access to guarantor schemes so that they can get the housing and the support that they need. Um, bigger picture, we, I think, cross party, actually. There's a lot of us who want to see the introduction of uh, universal basic income. Um, and um, similar to, to Carol, uh, unsurprisingly, as Greens, we have a massive investment plan, green, green recovery plan, which would see us investing in renewable energy, public transport, warm homes and restoring nature, which would create hundreds, hundreds of thousands of jobs at the same time, whilst also making our lives, lives better and reducing our carbon emissions. So we need to use this opportunity to build a fairer and greener Scotland, and we need to vote like our future depends on it. Great, thank you for that opening statement. Uh, we're on to our penultimate opening statement and that comes from Miles Briggs from the Conservative Party. Um, thank you, Jonas and Carter. And it's good to be back um, with the backbench uh, team to, to talk about this coming election. Um, I'm Miles Briggs, I'm the Conservative candidate in Edinburgh Southern and I'm also standing on top of our uh, Lothian regional list. I've been lucky enough um, to serve in the Scottish Parliament over the last uh, five years. And during that time, I've tried to work uh, with our student population across Edinburgh and the Lothians to make sure that some of the key issues which students are facing, especially through this pandemic, um, have not just been highlighted in Parliament, but have been addressed as well. And there's a number of issues I wanted to touch upon um, because certainly my mailbag from students um, has been huge during this pandemic. And mental health, um, as Kate already has touched upon tonight, um, is one of the key issues I think we haven't done enough to address. And it's certainly been my greatest concern as an MSP um, when people have come seeking support, often people in crisis. And I think that's one of the things which we need to really use the next parliament to address. Um, there's lots of issues um, the university has been working with MSPs on, and I think one of the key important aspects of anyone who's lucky enough to be elected from Edinburgh and the Lothians is to build that strong link with the student body. We need to make sure that student issues, yes, um, for a lot of students who are just studying in this great city uh, before planning to go home or travel around the world to work, um, but we need to make sure when people are here, they have the best possible um, experience. And often our public services aren't delivering for students. Um, I know over the last five years, um, when I've covered health in the parliament, that these key issues around student health issues in the city need to be addressed. And it's something I, along with colleagues like Sarah, have been trying to work to improve. Now, at this election, Scottish Conservatives are putting forward a number of issues that we think can help improve young people's chances. The pandemic has, above all, hit young people. And the negative impact and negative aspect of opportunities is something we all have to address. So Scottish Conservatives have put forward a number of ideas. Um, we'd introduce a skills participation age uh, to guarantee every young person is able to access either study or apprenticeship schemes or some form of training until they're at least 18. We also think the university sector needs to be given the support it needs 
to help, for example, the, the financial instability which the sector is reporting, uh, but also to look towards how we can be more flexible, for example, uh, flexible education degrees. And we also need to look at kickstart schemes. And one of the things which both the Scottish Government and UK Government have put forward are kickstart schemes worth up to £3,800 uh, for every unemployed young person in the country, and um, to try to give them opportunities uh, to find work or training. Um, and that's something which I think is really important. I've also been working to, to look at some of the aspects um, around the Turing scheme, which is a really important one, which I hope we can highlight tonight. Um, the scheme is open to applications and being extended to the 16th. Um, so there's opportunities I think we all need to make sure in the coming years uh, we highlight and deliver for young people. As we come out of this pandemic, and I think we're seeing positive steps now um, emerging, as we come out of this pandemic, we need to make sure that um, the opportunities young people have missed and those which we've had before of them um, are protected and we can make sure that um, students and young people um, have the best opportunity in life. And that's something I hope the next parliament will focus 100% on. Um, but as an MSP, I hope if I am returned uh, to continue to have a good relationship uh, with the university and with students. Great, thank you very much for that, Miles. And that brings us on to our uh, final introduction, but by no means uh, least favourite, but the final introduction, Sarah Boyack of the Labour Party. Thanks very much. It's great to join you tonight. I'm Sarah Boyack and I'm Scottish Labour candidate for the Lothian List. Um, and I think this has been an incredibly tough year for everybody because many people will have lost loved ones and there's been a huge economic and social pressure right across society. And from my work in the Scottish Parliament, I know for students, the lack of income, uncertainty with accommodation, increasing debt and worries about what happens when you graduate are massive pressures. And when Scottish Labour challenged the decisions taken in the autumn, there clearly wasn't a proper assessment of the health impacts and the rate of transmission of return for students last summer. So I think we need to reflect on the challenges of last year, but really focus on what the next parliament can do. In the autumn, I worked very hard to lobby the Scottish Government for more action student rents, and particularly on the issue of students who return to campus. Um, and I've been working with my colleague, Polly McNeil, about the whole issue of getting a better deal for tenants, um, including students who are currently missing out. Um, for example, private student accommodation. Um, the companies charge extortionate rents, pay no, lo no local tax to support students or communities. So I've been working with the National Union of Students on that. Um, and also pushing hard for students to be able to leave their accommodation without incurring debts or penalties. Um, and the last thing before we left the parliament um, in, to go into the, the campaign, one of the things I was raising was the cost of students returning to the UK who've been studying abroad and faced with the bills of quarantine. So it's been particularly hard for students and thinking about employment. Um, if you think about the closure of hospitality in Edinburgh particularly, it hit students really hard because part-time work disappeared overnight and it led to a loss of income. And it was shocking to see that NUS Scotland stats that 14% of students were relying on food banks to feed themselves. Uh, now I agree with the comments that um, other candidates have talked about in terms of mental health support, but I think there's something structural about our colleges and universities. Um, I, I worked as a part-time lecturer three years ago and I could see the difference then from when I worked in the university 
um, years before I got elected to the parliament first off. The massive funding pressures for universities and colleges. You've been seeing cuts back on staffing, further education sector, taking the re retrograde step of deprofessionalizing lecturing posts. So there are really big issues about poorly paid contracts um, that universities across the country are, are now um, doing for postdoctorate students and researchers. So thinking about the quality of employment is critical for us in Scottish Labour. And we want our jobs recovery, not just to be about the numbers, but to have quality jobs. So, you know, an end to zero hours contracts and using public sector procurement to deliver that, invest in low carbon infrastructure, for example, in energy efficiency to tackle fuel poverty and make sure that there are good quality jobs for graduates to be the norm. So we want to focus in the next Scottish Parliament on a national recovery plan to tackle the deep-seated inequalities we've seen worsening during the pandemic. While at the same time, if we're spending public money, we tackle inequalities, we create new jobs, and we tackle our nature and climate emergencies all at the same time. And that, that could be a huge opportunity with new jobs and training, uh, big investment in infrastructure, for example, energy efficient new homes, um, energy efficiency in our existing homes, and a new generation of renewables and heat networks, but getting Scottish jobs created and community and cooperative ownership models. And we also want to establish a co Scottish Conservation Corps to give young people new job opportunities and to tackle both our nature and climate emergencies. So I, I think there are really big challenges for the next parliament, but making sure young people have real opportunities for the future and decent jobs has got to be at the top of the list. So really glad to be here tonight. Thanks for the invite and very much forward, uh, look forward to tonight's discussions. Thanks. Well, thank, thank you everyone for, for your introduction. Just because Sarah went last, I'm gonna start with a follow-up to Sarah, which is to ask that, 95 in a recent Edinburgh poll, 95% of students placed in their top two priorities, climate or two or three priorities, climate change on their issues. And I know that you've spoken about investing in renewable energies and that one of the other candidates has talked about how the Scottish government can famously spend but not make. Um, could you give us some of the specific details about how you're going to invest in renewables and how that's going to lead to renewably friendly jobs? Yes, it's a really good question because we are about to repower all our big on onshore wind farms. They're going to be having bigger wind farms. Um, and I, I think and Scottish Labour believes that we should have jobs created in Scotland when those opportunities come around. Now, in other countries, in other European countries and in Canada, what they do is they use their planning system to require renewables companies to make sure they have a share of local jobs. And that's something we should be doing in Scotland, not having a lot of our imports um, where people aren't paid, never mind the living wage, but they're paid really incredibly low wages and people in places like China and Indonesia. And that's not acceptable. Um, and places like we've got a manufacturing opportunity by Fab in Fife, and they didn't get to do offshore renewables. So it doesn't make any sense. So I think there's something about having more direction from the Scottish government, political leadership, using the skills and knowledge that we've got from other countries across the world and making sure that we deliver. When I was our first renewables minister in 99, I set really what were seen as radical targets. We have gone way beyond them. So we're now getting most of our electricity is coming from renewables and from low carbon. So this is a big opportunity for us to tackle climate change, but at the same time, create quality, good um, supply chains of jobs in Scotland, both for young people who are school leavers, but also for 
um, students and graduates so that they're really good quality jobs and that they can be not just in um, some parts of Scotland but right across the country and in rural and in urban Scotland and community heat networks um, and making sure our new houses are energy efficient. That is a huge opportunity in terms of the building but also the infrastructure. Thanks Jonas. Thank you for that. So if I can jump in. Carol, I believe it was you who Jonas quoted there when he was talking. So I'd let you uh, jump in on the same question. Okay, well, I mean, I think that the, the climate change is obviously everybody's priority, or if it isn't, it ought to be. And if you look at the current situation in Scotland, the two areas where emissions are not falling in the way that they should are to do with heating houses and vehicle emissions, car emissions. They haven't, they haven't dropped and it's because we're simply not doing enough to get that to happen. And if we tackled those two big issues, we would actually put a serious dent in our CO2 emissions. If we take the, the situation with car travel, first of all, and it is car travel that is the, the main problem here, we need to get people out of their cars. And the evidence is that uh, car drivers come out of their cars much more readily onto trains than they do onto buses. So the Lib Dems, uh, Part of our core transport plan is the reopening of defunct railway lines. We do we have a um, strong example of the Borders Railway being reopened and being a huge success. There are, in fact, railway lines all over Scotland that were all shut down in the sort of 60s, the beaching cuts and so on. And we should be reopening them and all of our trains should be uh, not running on fossil fuel. We need to get that electrification going. So we need to get people out of their cars. And the other way that we can do that is to create much more opportunity for active travel, for walking and cycling and wheeling. And there has been, uh, the pandemic has caused kind of a splurge in um, psychopaths and so on, but they've been rushed through. They're sort of in a temporary basis. They don't look very good and they haven't been seriously thought through because these, the, we need seriously joined up thinking on this, because if we run a cycle path, it needs to run to where people want to go. And for in a lot of cases, it needs to actually run to a public transport, um, a bus stop or a station, because if people are going longer journeys, apart from the very fit, you know, somebody who's got to commute 25, 30 miles to work is maybe going to cycle to a station and get on a train, where at the moment they're taking their car. And it's that kind of thing that we need to, really think about all the way through the start of the journey through to the end where do you leave your bike is there somewhere that you can get out of your cycling gear and into your suit or whatever the kind of things which on the continent in countries like germany and the netherlands it's just automatic if you've ever stepped out of the railway station in amsterdam and seen the bikes stacked up in racks you know you know, disappearing up into the sky practically you can see how you have to think it right through from beginning to end so we need the active travel to be uh, promoted and we need the train travel. And on the housing front, it's, we, Scotland has some of the worst insulated housing in Europe. We, we ooze emissions out of our houses uh, and we need, we need to change that. And uh, retrofitting houses with proper insulation is one way to help. And the other way is to move away from the use of gas boilers. Gas boilers are one of the worst in terms of um, CO2 emissions. So we need to move to things like heat pumps. We need to make sure that when new build, that that's just part of the new build regulations. But we do have to tackle the fact that we have a huge housing stock 
that is seriously not climate friendly and we have to do something about that. And in tackling even these two issues, we will help the economy to recover and we will generate good, sustainable jobs in the process. We believe firmly that everything that we do, whether it's involved with health, whether it's involved with education, transport, whatever, we always think about the climate as one of the key factors in any decision-making that we take. But those are two major things that the Liberal Democrats would be looking at. Great, well, thank you for that. Um, I'm gonna open the question to anyone who hasn't spoken yet. Just for the sake of the podcast, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind slightly awkwardly saying your, your name just before you speak, I can see both Angus Robertson and Kate Nevins with their hands up. Um, feel free to answer the question just gone. Or what I wanted to also throw in is that we've heard about the prioritisation of climate justice for a long time now, but very little seems to have actually happened. Uh, is this the fault of the SNP? Can we actually create a climate-friendly economy with the current balance of powers. That's uh, over to you both. Um, feel free. In fact, you know, Angus Robertson, you go first, and then we'll pass you to Kate Evans. Thanks. So there have been a lot of sensible uh, points that have been made about the necessary changes that we need to make from our life. And um, I'm, I'm not feeling unduly attacked sitting in the car, uh, as I'm, I'm happy to confirm it's an electric vehicle, and I'd recommend <laughs> everybody and, and anybody um, to 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 do that um but it's i want to make answer, a, unfortunately uh, angus <laughs> no, the climate crisis. i want to make a wider point which i think um we, we should reflect on if you were to have held hustings like this even five years ago and somebody would have said that scotland would within the next five years almost become 100 percent self-sufficient in its energy uh, needs through renewable energy people would have said that that would be a ridiculously ambitious target. It will never be met. It is not possible. It will take much longer than that. We need to recognize that in the last year, we reached 97.4% of our energy needs through renewable energy sources. And that's a remarkable success story. What's even more remarkable, though, is that is almost entirely just from onshore wind production. It doesn't include any of the potential from offshore or from tidal or from wave uh, and so on. And so Scotland is in a fortunate position and we should learn from the mistakes of the past because uniquely uh, we have won twice on the natural lottery. Once in the 1960s and 70s with the discovery of oil as, a, as, an, as an energy rich country. Now, of course, recognizing the damage um, that uh, petro uh, uh, carbons uh, cause the environment. We are on the cusp of a second energy revolution where we are one of Europe's largest potential sources of renewable uh, energy. So countries like ourselves, Iceland, Norway, um, and other Northern European nations are going to be able to be net energy exporters. The SNP will not give permission for nuclear power stations in Scotland. We do not require them. But what we can do is that we can be really ambitious about our renewable uh, targets and continue that. But there's something else that I think we need to consider, which is what is it that we should be doing to make sure that everybody in Scotland is able to profit from the renewables energy revolution that we are going through? Why is it that Norway has been able to have uh, a long-term oil investment fund that has made the country the envy. It is the richest country in Europe now. Why do we not aspire to do that uh, with renewables? And this does come down to the powers of the Scottish Parliament. 
so either we're going to be able to uh, do the maximum that we can with devolved powers, and that is indeed what we will seek to do. But every other normal country has the full range of powers uh, over its social and economic future. And that is what Scotland requires, both when it comes to uh, climate policy, but also when it comes to the economy and economic growth. We can't just sort of poo-poo the fact that Ireland's GDP is higher than Scotland, uh, as if independence is not nothing to do with it. You could say exactly the same for Iceland, exactly the same for Norway, exactly the same for Denmark, and I could go on. Every single one of these countries is richer than us in GDP per head of population. And we have to ask ourselves, what is it they all have in common? They are in charge of their own policy. And that is what Scotland requires so that we can bounce back fully uh, out of the pandemic and emulate, aspire to, when it comes to climate policy and everything else, let us be as wealthy and fair a society as all of our Northern European nations. And we will only get that by being a sovereign, independent country. Great, Kate, uh, over to you, um, please. So I cannot express how delighted I am to be hearing all of these commitments from other parties. Um, I know it's taken us a while to get here, but it's amazing. Obviously, the Greens have been talking about this for a really long time, but it's really, really good to hear some really, really strong plans for investment in low carbon industries, essentially. And that's it. That's it's, it's really it's really great. Um, obviously, Scottish Greens, Greens around the world, in fact, have been leading the way on this. But absolutely, we'll, we will support everyone to catch up. Um, however, I would say, uh, so I absolutely support all of these investments uh, that Sarah and Carol have mentioned, um, but Scottish climate emissions, they are going up. The SNP do talk a really good game on this, and they have some extremely ambitious targets, but they just, we currently do not have the plans to match the targets. And we're looking at parties, other parties, are beginning to really talk the right talk, but uh, the SNP in the latest budget committed 155 million to new roads in this budget. So we're, talk we're still talking about party that is still committed to road building when we should be committed to trains uh, and public transport. Um, the Conservative government uh, have also, I think, committed, the UK government has committed around 27 billion on building 4,000 miles of new road. And I think Labour has just committed to building a new urban motorway tunnel in London. So we've still got some, some way to go here. Um, so in terms of mentioning two things that haven't been mentioned, um, not to say that I so support some of the things that have been mentioned, but two, two areas. One is that we are not strong enough on, uh, we're, strong, we're strong here on talking about investment, but what we're not strong enough on here is talking about ending oil and gas extraction, which needs to happen now. So we have nine years left on the climate clock. We have nine years to turn this emergency around. And the first thing that we have to do is get the money out of the subsidies that we give to oil and gas. We need to get those subsidies into renewable energies and low carbon industry. And none of, none of the parties have a quick enough transition plan. And that's not about turning off the tap of jobs uh, immediately. That's about transitioning people's jobs technical jobs into renewable energy starting starting now. And then the other area where the Greens, and I, I, I think this would have support, but where the Greens have been doing a lot of work is rewilding. 
So we need not just to have lower carbon emissions, we also need uh, an environment that is uh, biodiverse and can absorb the carbon. So we need to reforest, we need uh, native woodlands across Scotland. A lot of people don't know how much of the native woodland we've lost. A lot of the beautiful landscapes that we see are actually uh, of heather, are actually very overmanaged grouse moors that need to turn back into wetlands and to into forests. So we have some really, our manifesto is coming out tomorrow, but we have some really, really strong commitments about getting our natural environment back to the state that it should be in Scotland, which is a big part of our uh, climate and biodiversity uh, plan. Great. Uh, just before we pass over to, to, to either Miles or Carol, I just want to ask you, Kate, why have we not seen effective action? So you say there are nine years left. The Greens have been talking about this for a long time. They're named after it. This is the, the headline thing. Why has there been so little actual action? Oh, uh, yeah, so it's not just it's not just green parties that have been talking about this for a long time. We've got yeah. indigenous communities around the world that have been fighting for land rights and climate justice for generations, and we've not been listening to them. So I think I mentioned that part of my job is working with youth and women's groups in other areas of the world. Um, one of the countries I've been working with uh, community groups in is South Sudan, where people are already uh, losing their livelihoods to climate change. Their um, it, climate drive, uh, change is driving conflict. Um, like this is already happening to a lot of people around the world. And we've been, I think, refusing to engage or see. And we're really, I think we, our whole economy is so pinned to this idea of fossil fuels. And it's such, it's, it's always sounded so radical that the Greens have said we need a different way of doing the economy. We don't want an economy that's based on infinite growth on finite resources. And that's quite a radical thing to say. And that's taken people, people are getting there. And we're talking, we're having cross-party conversations about universal basic income, about a fairer economy rather than a growing economy. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's hard stuff. It's hard stuff for people, I think. Thank you for that, Carol. So we're gonna move on to Miles. Or, sorry, thank you for that, Kate. And then we'll move on to Miles and then Carol, and then we'll move on to our next question. So. Great. Thank, thank you, um, one of the things which over the last five years I've I've found very positive about the last parliament was actually how there is this collective endeavour to try to address climate change and all these targets which we've been trying to set for Scotland have been cross-party and, and we've been trying to really push the agenda and I think that's important and, and green MSPs in the parliament um, I have worked with on a number of issues locally to make sure that we've we've supported each other to make sure things are progressed where we can. There's a couple of things I wanted to touch on. Firstly, um, the recycling rates. And here in Edinburgh, I think we've actually rapidly becoming a city which isn't good for recycling. So I think we need to see more progress on that. Uh, the Scottish government haven't met any of their recycling targets. Um, so the circular economy, which is something which is being raised in the, the parliament regularly, doesn't really seem to be getting the focus it needs to put in the infrastructure um, across Edinburgh and across Scotland to achieve that. Because at the end of the day, we need to make recycling as easy as possible for individuals. And for Glasgow and Edinburgh, where we've got a high level of tenement and flatted properties, it is difficult. And we need to see uh, the next steps taken on that. And to touch upon the point which both Carol and Sarah, I think, um, really led on, um, the investment which we need to see and the transition towards um, making our housing stock across Scotland, um, you know, better insulated, yes, but actually what will be a huge investment for 
for people to replace their boilers in the future. And um, everyone will have to live up to that. I'm currently looking at replacing my boiler and some of the costs around that um, are really significant. And I think we really need to focus on what we can do. Previously, we've had uh, boiler scrappage schemes, for example. So policies that actually can work in the real world are so important for us to be able to meet our climate change targets. And it kind of feels like we've done some of the easy, low-hanging fruit issues in the recent years. But the next parliament uh, really need to look at some of these um, schemes which can actually help individuals when they're trying because I think most people especially people's children uh, who are absolutely 100% up to speed with this and um, want to be able to actively change this in their lives but that's where the Scottish Parliament and the UK government can look towards uh, assisting us all to do that. I think we need to be really careful about shifting the responsibility away from governments and large corporations onto the individual just to respond on that. There are good things we can do as individuals, but the changes that we need, the dramatic changes that we need, need to come from governments and they need to come from big transnational corporations and regulating those big transnational corporations. So we'll let Carol get in there and then just ask another question. And just to say, um, throughout this, anyone can jump in whenever you have a point throughout the rest of the debate, just to make that clear. But uh, go ahead, yeah, Carol. Absolutely. Okay, well, I just wanted to make two quick points based on a couple of things that Kate had said, and what one was when she was talking about um, jobs. That uh, I mean, one of the things that the the Lib Dems have <clears throat> in our manifesto is that, particularly in the northeast, we need to transition people away from jobs in the fossil fuel industry. It's that it's happening under them anyway. It, the, the jobs are going, but we need to get people in a position where they can take up other jobs. And we have specifically set aside. Um, 15 million pounds simply on retraining people. There are a lot of highly skilled people there, but they need to, to retrain into different industries. And that's something we need to, to focus on. And the second thing is to do with the natural environment. And we are suggesting that, that we actually should bring into law um, specific targets on things like peatland, planting of trees, national parks, and so on, actually making that part of the normal national agenda. I think at the moment we've got something like 36 million trees a year. I mean, that, I mean, now I, I, I deal in numbers and that's still a huge number to get your head around, you know, 36 million trees, but presumably somebody somewhere has worked out that that's doable and that that's something that would start to make a difference if we kept up that kind of momentum. So I do, I would absolutely agree with Kate, we need to normalize this kind of approach to how we, how we deal with the uh, environment and, and climate change. Brilliant. Well, on to our next topic. Uh, just a slight change to process, which is uh, from now on, I think that uh, in order to cover uh, a bit more, because I know we have uh, a lot of people talking about a lot of interesting stuff, we're going to kind of impose a two-minute timer on answers. Uh, rebuttals are fine, but a two-minute timer nonetheless. Oh, have I... my my Is my connection back or...? It's back. A two-minute timer on the nest. Um, whilst we are talking about youth, uh, we're going to talk about a topic that is not just focused on the youth, but is uh, prominent across all ages and all regions in Scotland, uh, but with which the youth uh, represent a very changing culture, and that's drug policy in Scotland. Uh, instead of picking a certain order, if you want to speak for the sake of your podcast, just put your hand up and we'll, we'll, we'll pick you and say your name and we'll speak. But there is obviously a drugs pandemic in Scotland and a need to fix it. COVID has exacerbated it massively in terms of services and users. And so we wanted to know 
uh, if elected, what will you be doing to help improve the drug situation across Scotland? Uh, let's start with Miles this time. So Miles Briggs. Thanks, Jonas. This is one of the biggest issues and one of the hardest issues I think the Parliament hasn't really worked well on over the last um, you know, 20 years, to be quite frank. Um, we have the worst drug death rate anywhere now in Europe, and that shames all of us as politicians. But the action we should have seen, we haven't. And I have, in my time during this Parliament as Shadow Health Secretary, um, been calling for more money, been calling for more different policies, a different direction for people who are actually um, in crisis often, um, to be given the support they needed and for the Scottish Government to cut £20 million from our drug and alcohol services did destabilise a lot of services here in the capital and they have apologised for that and I welcome that fact but we need to now see a real cross-party endeavour in the next Parliament to address this. Now the investment which has been brought forward is welcome but we need to see wraparound care and one of the things I did um, a couple of years ago was wrote a policy paper with the charities with the, the sector, which I gave to the government to try to look towards how we can move towards that, because it actually comes down to housing, again, being one of the key issues. Um, and a housing first model is something I would like to see adapted in the next parliament. Um, here in Edinburgh, um, Alison Johnson, who's a Green MSP and myself, uh, visited services during a health health committee inquiry which were undertaken and it was quite clear from those individuals we met actually that the, the drugs issues we're facing now are very different by age groups and that's something which a one-size-fits-all service was letting people actually um, slip through the net so I hope in the next parliament those of us who are lucky enough to be there can really push um, to make sure that drug policy does change and some of the key policies which um, I had outlined um, here in Edinburgh which I'd like to see is more opportunities for the nighttime economy. There's a lot of people who um, are charities who are working in that, who need support. And that's something which I think we should we should really all be looking towards. Um, again, like I say, the, the finance which has now been put in, it's 50 million pounds uh, this coming year, 250 million over the next five years, um, will help to try to turn this around. But we need to make sure um, that what is a real shame to this country um, is addressed. And the figures as they stand will be worse this coming year. People working in the sector who I've spoken to um, are saying that we've just really, we haven't meet, met any peak in this crisis quite yet. Just to note the time limit, if possible. Um... Uh, thank you Give for that. Way when we're hitting like one minute 50. Yeah, we'll give you a wave. That, that's, a, that's a very good idea. We'll give you a wave one minute. So thank you for that, Miles. So we'll go on to Sarah. Thanks. Well, the last um, SNP minister who's responsible for drugs lost his job because of the drugs crisis, and it's been building for a long time. And I think the, the points that are made about um, support for people, the funding of that, and also looking at people's access for support. Homelessness is a massive problem for us in Scotland, in particular in Edinburgh, in terms of the loss of affordable housing for people, but so are loss of jobs and people actually being excluded from support. So there's, a, there's an issue about making sure our drugs policy actually links right across with tackling the inequalities that far too many people face. And I think that's one of the things we've got to focus on in the next parliament, a joined up approach. So the point made, Miles made about housing first, unless you've got a stable place to live, 
it's really difficult to tackle long-term health issues like uh, drugs misuse. And people who've had drug addiction problems are much more likely to end up in and out of the NHS and their situation gets worse, not better. So there's something about breaking the chain of people's experience. And I think there's some fantastic work being done by a lot of the third sector organisations. But another key thing I would mention is that people who've been through that experience themselves need to be part of the solution. So you need the professional support, but people who've been through that crisis also need to inform the policy going forward because their life experiences can actually inform getting better policies in the next parliament so we don't see the same repeated failures. And I think that's absolutely crucial so that you're tackling the inequalities and the lack of power and you're giving those people a voice and you, you make the real change that they, they do have a permanent house so that they can start to get their life back with the right kind of support. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. Over to you, Carol. Well, I mean, I would echo a lot of what's already been said. I mean, there is a cycle here of, of poverty in childhood leading to um, lack of success in the education system, mental health problems, and so on. But there's one specific thing I want to mention. I'm based in Glasgow, and the homelessness figures on the streets in Glasgow are the worst in Scotland. Because if you're homeless, even in a rural area, you tend to drift into the big cities, and Glasgow's where a lot of them drift into. And Shelter did, in fact, take Glasgow City Council to court because they were turning away people from the night shelters on the basis that they were not residents of the city. So we actually need a structural change in how we deal with that kind of emergency uh, situation. Obviously, things like housing first, rapid rehousing should try and get this problem down. But while it's at this crisis level, cities like Glasgow need national support in this. If, the, if instead of it just being a burden on the local authority, there was national funding that could actually get the Housing First model up and running in places like Glasgow, get people off the streets, start to get them the support, and thereafter, in the longer term, it can revert to being a local authority um, responsibility. But at the moment, there are places, and Glasgow's the key one, that are completely overwhelmed with the responsibility that, that they have, and they just don't have the money to deal with it. And so it's a crisis, and we need a national attention being paid to that crisis in the local areas. Thank you for that, Carol. We'll move on with Kate and then we'll go to Angus. Um, sure. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think this is something that uh, needs a completely different approach. So I think what the Greens would like to see is a shift to a public health approach uh, and away from a criminal justice approach um, to drugs. Um, in Scotland, we actually have a really uh, positive record of harm reduction policies. So things like the smoking ban, things like the minimum unit pricing for alcohol and uh, our approach to knife crime, particularly in Glasgow. Uh, and we think that the drug deaths need to be treated in a similar, a similar way. Um, I really agree with Sarah about uh, it, this needs to be driven by uh, people that have lived experience of drug abuse. Uh, and it needs to be, as everyone's been saying, needs to be links to approaches around tackling poverty and housing first. Um, mentioned Glasgow, but actually areas like West Lothian, um, in Lothian, uh, where we're all candidate, um, services are really, really scarce and waiting lists are huge. We've got no crisis services and waiting times to see a psychologist is something like 
18 months to two years. Um, so our Greens would be proposing um, focusing on things like drop-in services and crisis centres for drug users, um, including uh, the creation of safe consumption facilities. Um, and then there's other little things that are also about linking things together. So one of the things that um, drug users are saying in West Lothian is that they cannot access the services in Edinburgh because they don't have the money to get on a bus. Um, so obviously that's linked to uh, tackling poverty, but it's also linked to tackling access to public transport. And one of the things that the Greens have done in the last parliament is bring in free buses for everyone under the age of 22, which particularly affects students, but also affects some parts of the drug, uh, the drug user community. Uh, and what we'd be doing is looking to extend that and actually have free buses for everyone in the future. So yeah, it's about, as people said, it's really about linking all this stuff together. Thank you, Kate. Angus, we'll let you close on this topic here and then we'll move on. Thanks. So I think there's been some really good identification of some of the symptoms of the problem that we are dealing with in this country. But for people of uh, an interest in this in particular, I'd strongly advise them uh, to read the report that was published on a cross-party basis by the Scottish Affairs Select Committee last November, which called for a radical rethink of current drugs policy. Their recommendations included uh, the decriminalising of drugs uh, for personal use and back in consumption rooms. Um, and uh, obviously we have seen progress in Scotland in as much as uh, since the SNP took power in 2007 from, from Labour and the Liberal Democrats, this has moved from being a criminal justice issue to being a public health issue. And where, where I think we are, we, are, we are all of us, we are going to have to think things that previously we were not prepared to think about to get a grip of the challenge that we're dealing with here. Yes, we need to identify the symptoms of the problem, but we actually need to get to grips um, with it uh, as a whole. And that's why I think this report is, is, is so important. I'm really, really sorry that the UK government literally rejected it out of hand, notwithstanding the fact that Conservative MPs were involved in, in producing the report. And if they're not prepared uh, to deal uh, with the issue at a UK level, they should devolve the law uh, making powers in relation to this. Because for those of you who are not aware, all UK drugs misuse legislation is currently reserved to Westminster. So if the UK government is not prepared to deal with this, and it doesn't look like they are, um, this, just like so many other things, should be decided in our national parliament closer to home, where I think people have got a better handle on the challenges that we face. And let's make the right decisions uh, to deal with this very significant blight that we, we uh, live with in our society. So thank you all for that on what is a very pressing issue. And I wanted to move on to, so in preparation for this hostings, we received various questions from students. And I wanted to focus on a question we received about universities and disability policies. So it's become sort of clear that around Scotland, there are many policies that have sort of been standardized. And a student gave me this quote saying, it is like politicians and university administrators don't understand what autism is and think that giving us a printer is all we need when what we really need is someone to advocate for us and properly support us. Now, autism is one of many disabilities, but obviously that is what was uh, topical for the student. So my question would be, and whoever would like to go in first, please put your hand up. Um, how would you support those with autism and other disabilities across Scotland in both universities and higher education? Miles, you want to jump in there? Yeah, thank you. Um, it's a really good question. And I think one of the 
I did a hustings, I think, um, two years ago, actually, with the university and had a couple of students who raised this very issue. Um, and I'd taken it up with the university because I think, um, and with the Scottish government, actually, because an autism strategy, um, which we desperately need for the whole of society, actually, for people uh, living with autism, um, hasn't really been developed. But there's a lot of calls at this election for us to make sure that um, our public services, firstly, but also opportunities around study, around work as well, um, are really taken into account. So I would like to see um, a proper autism strategy across our public services um, looked at. I certainly know on a case-by-case -case basis with some of the, the work I've done that the university's actually been pretty good once a student is willing to, to reach out and ask for that help. Um, the problem is often not wanting to. Um, and I think we need to see more of an investment within the, the student uh, body itself to, to provide support. And for, for children as well with dyslexia, that's another area which I think we have seen progress, uh, but we need to see more investment in this. And I think um, increasingly the parliament and the cross-party group on autism, um, which I have attended on a number of occasions, had, had highlighted some of this as well. And some of my colleagues had, had been pushing for this. So I hope we can look towards um, the next parliament really looking at a an autism strategy for um, these individual cases. And I think it's it's high time we did and that disability policies um, were, were changed to, to take this and, and other conditions into account. Thank you, Miles. If Carol would like to jump in. Yeah, I mean, th this was obviously something as a head teacher, I had direct experience of as pupils uh, with various disabilities and how we catered for them. I think part of the problem is that in the past, the word disability tended to conjure up a physical disability. And to be honest, physical disabilities are actually easier to deal with because you, you know, pe people can actually make physical changes to the environment and accommodate somebody who has a physical disability. Something like autism is not visible and that's part of the problem that people don't even recognize that somebody has a disability at all because it's, it, they, they can't actually see it. This is one of the areas where I think, we mentioned already people with lived experience. This is an area where you definitely need people with lived experience to be contributing to whatever strategies are in place. And in my experience of dealing with um, pupils with autism, everyone was absolutely individual. It was absolutely individual. It was almost not worth having like a school policy, which had various things in it, other than uh, strategies about whose, whose responsibility it is to sit down, have the discussion, work out what you're going to do. But actually what you were going to do was very specific to the individual. So I think that um, universities and colleges need to be very aware that they may not they may not see that this that this uh, is happening, that anybody has this disability. Uh, they need to have a built-in lived experience system so that people can feed in what their experience has been and how it could have been improved. And they need people whose responsibility it is to actually check on the welfare of students. We would, as, as Lib Dems, we are very, very concerned about um, as was mentioned before, the mental health crisis. And we think that there ought to be mental health counsellors and first aiders in any organisation with a number of people in them, which would include universities. These people should also have expertise in, in these kind of areas. So you, you cannot get away from it being very individual and you cannot get away from it being labour intensive and getting the people in there to provide the necessary support. Thank you very much for that, Carol. Sarah, if you'd like to jump in. 
Yeah, I would like to follow on from that because um, before I became an MSP, I was a lecturer in higher education. And then when I left the parliament for three years, I went back and did some part-time teaching in higher education. And what really struck me was that we, we still don't have the infrastructure in place and you still don't automatically have the culture in place either. So there's something about the very start of somebody's time at university. That first term is absolutely critical. And that means that support is available for somebody starting university and that you have the right support staff to engage with people when they arrive, because the first year in particular, we do see people dropping out of university for a variety of reasons. It could be financial, it could be because they're not getting the support they need. But I think in terms of um, mental health going forward from the pandemic and also giving people support who will have been isolated for the last year, I think it's going to be an even more important issue in the coming year. And, and we need to make sure for the, the new generation of young people arriving at universities this autumn, that that support is all in place and the learning experience is there to be done, the culture issues, um, what, what kind of assessments are appropriate. You know, not everybody is, uh, it's not fair on everybody to ask them to do presentations, for example, oral presentations. You've got to think through teamwork. So it's got to be really based around individual people because you want to make sure that their skills and their knowledge are actually transformed and enhanced and that they enjoy being at university. And for me, the first term is critical. And the point that somebody made about um, involving student associations in that, I think is important as well, because it's it's not just a top-down thing from the universities, it's also making sure that students inform this process. And you know, when you start university, making sure that support is in place and the culture, I think is absolutely critical, but then everything else has to run through from that. Um, but what kind of teaching, what kind of support facilities are available, and then making sure people get fair and correct assessments, all of that needs to be in place. Um, and, and you need to make sure all your staff are properly trained. You'd think that would be obvious, but that's not necessarily the case. And the shift to more short term contracts and to deprofessionalisation, particularly in the FE sector, I think is a real threat because I think going forward, we're going to need more support for young people, more trained and more skilled professionalism, not less. And that's about funding. And then the next Scottish Parliament has got to address that. Thanks. Thank you for that, Sarah. So we'll move on to Kate and then Angus, and then we'll finish with another question, but this time from the audience. Yeah, so, um, thank you for this question. Uh, it's really it's really interesting. I have a friend who works as a support worker at Edinburgh University, um, uh, specifically for autistic students. Um, so I have a, a glimpse <laughs> into what is and isn't available at Edinburgh University, but it's just a glimpse. Um, I think it's really important to remember that um, our society and our economy and our services, they create the barriers that disabled people face to full participation. Um, and we need to remove and dismantle those barriers, not just talk about it in terms of adjustments, like adjusting a society that is built exclusively for able-bodied white cis men. Uh, and tweaking it at the edges, we need to dismantle the system, including our education system, to make it properly inclusive. Um, I completely agree with what Sarah was saying about, and Carol was saying about dedicated support workers, properly trained staff, worries around the deprofessionalization of um, higher education and further education staff, um, and the zero hour contracts that means that you can't then develop those relationships that are so important with your students. Um, there's also something about um, 
there's a, a, a much better, it seems to be a much better conversation happening in Scotland around additional support needs for students in schools. Um, but then how, how are we managing that transition from students at schools into students at university and how um, that support that has been provided doesn't just get cut off um, at the point that you hit 18. Um, I think there's also something around making inclusive communication the norm. I don't know whether we've been doing a good job of it as panelists this evening in terms of whether we're talking policy wonk, um, but just making sure that the way the university and colleges and schools communicate uh, ev everyone can access the information they need in the right format. So I think that's a really key, key part of that as well. Thank you very much for that. So Angus, if you'd like to finish off. Well, I hope I'm not going to inject any controversy by saying that I agree wholeheartedly with what Miles Briggs said at the start of uh, the round. And I have to say uh, to the other colleagues on, on the panel, uh, I think I would I would agree with you know ninety five percent of what everybody has said, and I think that should give um, whoever the questioner was uh, realistic hope and expectation that this is something that given this is this is not a party political issue. It's how do we find our way through something to try and and improve it. And so if, if we if we were all to be elected, that would probably be a good thing on a question like this because you can come back, hold us to account, make sure that we're actually. Um, incrementally changing people's lived experience in education with the challenges that have been highlighted. So I think there have been some really good suggestions about how one can do this by including those who are living this experience. And for those of us who are not, to make sure that if we're able to influence uh, institutions, whether those are institu uh, institutions like universities and colleges, or it's gov government, the Scottish government at this point, um, uh, then I think that's something that all of us would be open to do. And it's the kind of thing that you should be, ask us back after the election, ask us what we are doing. Um, uh, uh, come to our surgeries, uh, ask us um, what our plans are. Uh, to make sure that we are able to bring about this change. I, I would be optimistic that this is this is one of those areas where we, we are getting better as a society. No doubt it has been far too slow for people who, in the first instance, you know, with physical disabilities, and now we're dealing with disabilities that are less evident um, uh, to others. Um, but I think there is, there is a willingness to make sure that we can, can try and improve things as much as is possible. So on, on that consensus note, I will end my answer there by thinking, I think we can, we, can ha we can have some optimism about this, but just make sure that we are, we are acting on all of, the, all of the warm and supportive words that we've all offered tonight. Thank you very much for that. And I'm sure the person who asked the question, who just wished to stay anonymous, I'm sure, from what everyone has said today, I'm sure uh, they will find sort of relief in that. And uh, perhaps after the election, we'll ask you all back to talk about the issues that we've talked about tonight. So we have a question from the audience. And just to reiterate that if anyone wants to ask a question at all, please put them in the comments and we will get to them. And the question is from Jack, who says, what are candidates' thoughts on the UK government's move to challenge recent laws passed in the Scottish Parliament codifying the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child and the European Charter of Local self-government into Scots law at the UK Supreme Court. Um, Angus, you went last there. Would you like to go first this time? Um, sure. Well, um, if we didn't ha have a, a timely wake-up call about what this election 
uh, is all about and the choices that we can make, this is indeed it. So for people who are not aware uh, about what this is about, uh, this was a good example where all political parties came together in the Scottish Parliament and unanimously sought to pass uh, these pieces of uh, uh, UN a treaty obligation into Scots law. There was no disagreement between the political parties on doing this. And uh, what has transpired is that the UK government has taken objection to this uh, and is raising this in the Supreme Court. Now, normal countries don't see their parliament overruled when they're making sensible um, and um, unanimous decisions like this. So what, what it tells us is a uh, the UK government is a bad actor and is not acting in the interests of, um, uh, in this case, children in Scotland. Uh, and secondly, it should be a wake up call to all of us. Do, do we want to have a, a, a parliamentary system, which is a supplicant uh, to the parliament at Westminster and the government at Westminster that uh, is not elected by the people of Scotland? The Conservatives have not won an election since 1955 in this country. Uh, and, and we're supposed to roll over, have our tummy tickled and, and say this is, um, this is an appropriate situation to be in. It is not. It is an absolute outrage. Uh, but we can protest as just much. To, as sorry, we... just to remind time limits, if possible, uh, just nearing the end. Uh, being able to wrap up. I, I, I will not monopolize the microphone to say there is a simple answer to all of this, which is don't let another parliament and another government the ability to overrule our national parliament and our government. It's a simple way to do that. Let's have a referendum. Let's become a sovereign country and let our parliament, when it makes unanimous, sensible decisions like this, to enshrine the rights of children is actually respected. The Tories in London aren't interested in doing that. Let's get on with it ourselves. Kate, over to you. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, uh, I agree with Angus. Um, this is such a, a good, like a, a sign of why we will not be able to progress our human rights in Scotland whilst we remain part of the UK. And for me, my support for independence is a lot to do with being able to be a country where we're seeing our human rights going in the right direction rather than the wrong direction. Um, I mean, at UK level at the moment, it's not just this like symbolic meddling that's happening. Uh, it, they actually, the UK government is actually threatening to water down government accountability on human rights at UK level uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a real threat uh, to women's rights, to LGBT rights, to disabled people's rights, uh, to all of our rights. Um, and we absolutely need more human rights law protections here in Scotland, not less. Uh, and actually it's really exciting that the UNCRC is being incorporated, the uh, UN Convention on the Rights of the Child is being incorporated into Scots law, hopefully at cross party with many of us, we will work together in the next parliament to get a bunch of other international human rights treaties incorporated into Scots law. And this is us moving in the right direction. And I don't, really? you know, I don't think this kind of meddling will, will get in the way. <laughs> we're, on a, we're on a positive path. Great, and with, with, with eyes on the time and also noting consensus, amazingly, amongst all parties, uh, I'll pass it over to Carol for one last um, on a bit, on bit to that. Actually, uh, I mean, I, my, my point is this, that I think actually this is, the, this is not the UK uh, objecting to the Scotland 
taking this act into law. It's on a very minor, well, not a minor, but it's on a very uh, small point of detail. And the point of detail is, as I understand it, that this law in Scotland actually places some responsibility onto UK ministers, which means it has acted beyond its actual powers as a devolved parliament. And that the UK government actually alerted the Scottish government to this ahead of time, and it could have been resolved. It could have, they could have sat down and worked out the wording so that that didn't actually happen. Now, it, I don't. I think I don't think it's a major issue. I'm not quite sure why the UK government is making such a fuss about it, but I think that that's that is what it's all about. And I think that um, had it worked in the opposite direction, if the UK government passed something which actually had that effect on the Scottish government, quite rightly, we would object to that. So I think it's a bit of a storm in a teacup about a legal uh, nicety that's in, built into the Act, um, rather than the UK government trying to say that Scotland can't do this. We can do it, but we just haven't done it in exactly the correct manner. And I have to say that the SNP government doesn't have a good track record on implementing the law in detail. We've already lost half, you know, £500 million on losing a court case because they didn't interpret the law correctly. So I, I, I think it's, it's wrong-footed of the UK government to do this, but I don't actually think it's as big an issue as some people are making out. I think it's it possibly in itself isn't too big an issue, but it is indicative of the UK government's approach. You break the law, that. you break the law. This is a country that's ruled by law. And if a government steps over their bounds in law, I'm not happy with that because if they're allowed to do it in one thing, they can do it in another. I want my government to stick to the law. The rule of law is the foundation of a civilised society. We shouldn't be saying it's okay if you just make a bit of a mistake on the side. I don't agree. Lib Dems voted for it. I know they voted for that, but they weren't aware at the time that actually the wording of it Pushed, up, pushed the legal side of it into the area where it wasn't actually within the powers of the parliament. It has now been revealed that the Scottish government had a letter to that effect before we got to that stage. So we need never have been in this position. It could have been resolved beforehand. That's my understanding. I think just before we move on to Sarah Miles, sorry, just before we move on to Sarah Miles, I think we have to let Angus in there just to rebuttal if he wants. No, all right, Sarah, no, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say this is the point at which we need a grown-up mature relationship between two powerful states. Um, Scotland is part of the UK and when we campaigned for devolution in 99, it was to have a separation of powers. It's absolutely clear that if something is not mentioned in the Scotland Act, it is up to the Scottish Parliament to deal with it as is. So I, I'm totally intrigued by the Local Government Act because it did also get cross-party support in the Scottish Parliament. And for me, it was a bit of unfinished business. It was a Green Members Bill. I supported it um, because the Tony Blair government um, ratified that treaty, that European Treaty on Human Rights, sorry, on Local Government Rights. Um, and then we put the legislation through the Parliament. And it is it is very challenging legislation I think in future because it will reverse the centralisation we've seen in Scotland over the last few years where the SNP has limited local government's powers and, and done cutbacks and um, required them to spend money on different things so I, I thought the intervention by the government, um, UK Tory government was just um, a classic and I think um, we need to we need to make our Scottish Parliament really successful. And one of the opportunities of these elections is to make sure that we are committed to having a democratic system that works. 
so that we test our legislation properly um, and that we make sure that we pass legislation that's going to be fit for purpose. Um, and I, I'm really keen to come back, particularly on the, the unfinished business of local government um, and devolving power, because I think across the UK, Westminster's administration is still too centralised. I'd like to see the English regions with more powers. I'd like to see the Scottish local authorities with more powers. And I think that's, that's it's not as exciting as everything else we've discussed tonight, but actually it's really important in terms of democracy and empowering people. Thanks. Great. Miles, just for uh, fairness, do you have anything to weigh in on that at the end? No, I just wanted to touch on some of the things which have been said. Um, because because we're in the heat of an election, there's a lot of hyperbole around this, but it was a piece of legislation which was cross-party uh, supported. One of the problems we've really seen in the last six months was the Scottish Government delayed a lot of legislation. Um, now, some of that because of the pandemic, but not necessarily. We've not seen much legislation brought brought forward until the very end of this parliament. So like Sarah touched upon, there seems to be some concerns over how um, laws have actually been made and how they'll apply. I understand that this had been highlighted to the Scottish Government and to the presiding officer before, um, but we need to make sure that these things are ironed out. The Parliament sadly has started to get a reputation for bad lawmaking or having to uh, go again over different laws and repeal them and look that back over uh, different amendments. And I think we need to make sure um, like Carol touched upon, we get these laws right. So um, in the heat of an election, people will um, maybe make this a bigger issue than it has to be. But I think we need to make sure both governments uh, respect each other and work together to resolve this because there was cross-party consensus and the bill as it passed through Parliament, certainly the benefits of this bill and some of the amendments which my colleagues also brought to the bill, um, I think can, can make a difference. And we'll see more of these um, sometimes manufactured arguments, I'm sure, during this election. But what's most important is, I think the majority of people in Scotland are confident that they have two governments which should be working together. And as we decided to stay part of the United Kingdom, and um, we need to make sure the Scottish Parliament works as well as it can to deliver for the people of Scotland on the areas we have responsibility. And I think that's important. And something all of us as MSPs should be trying to make sure that, like Sarah said, our parliament is a success and is respected for the work it's doing as well. Thank you, everyone, for that. And I hope that answers your question, Jack. So just as we're looking at the time here, we got one last question from the audience. But what we're going to do is we're going to try and limit responses to a minute. Um, Jonas will throw his hand up when there's 10 seconds left. So this question is from Lane. How will candidates engage in anti-racist policies and movements in Scotland? So who'd like to jump in first? Miles, go ahead. Thank well, I have since I was elected, and I think we've got some fantastic organizations in Scotland like um, Show Racism the Red Card. I think we should do more with these organizations uh, to promote them across society. Um, sadly, we continue to have the issue of sectarianism in this country as well, which needs to be, I think, addressed in the next parliament. But there should be no place for racism in our society. And I think we're seeing improvements. I think people are more willing to call out racism, and that should be a positive thing. And from what we've seen with Black Lives Matters and, and other uh, groups over the past few years, I think there is a real political will to make sure uh, that this issue is properly addressed and we, we all cross party uh, support that. Brilliant, over to Carol Ford for the Lib Dems. 
I think there are two sides to this. Um, one is to do with law about what's legal and illegal in terms of uh, racism. The other is to do with attitudes. And I think sometimes any group that is disadvantaged in some way tends to go for changing the law and getting the law on their side. And I, that's understandable. But, but the problem is they sometimes think that once we've got the law and once we've got the, you know, the hate crime bill in, once we've got in, in the American situation, the civil rights legislation, that the job is done and it isn't because the job is actually much more than that. Once you've got the law in, you've still got to tackle people's attitudes. Miles mentioned briefly there sectarianism in Scotland. That has decreased markedly over my lifetime. I'm probably the oldest person here, and I can remember when sectarianism was way worse than it is now, and it has improved no end. But I think if we are going to try and improve it, um, attitudes, then it's education. So we need an educational system that actually does move people, society's attitudes on, because it isn't just the law that affects people's lives. Great. Thank you, Carol. Kate Nevins for the Greens, you had your hand up. Great. Um, any, Sarah? Oh, sorry, Sarah, over to you. You are muted at the moment. Yep. Um, thanks, Jonas. Um, I think three things. Firstly, education, as others have said. There was some very interesting research carried out by the Educational Institution of Scotland, and it showed that we don't have very many um, teachers from black and ethnic minority communities and we have very, very poor numbers of people ever getting promoted from black and ethnic minority communities. And I know we've had issues of racism in Edinburgh schools, which are totally unacceptable. And my colleague Foisel Chowdhury is on the list um, with me for, for Scottish Labour. He's done a lot of work with the Racial Equality Council to try and get change. So inequalities at school have to be tackled. Then there's issues about the inequalities coming out of COVID because a lot of people from black and ethnic minority communities have actually been worse impacted by COVID. And that's partly because of the frontline health jobs they've had, they've not had the right um, protective support from PPE. Um, and there's an issue about poor quality housing, um, intergenerational living where somebody's gone out to work and older people are impacted. So there have been some you know, really awful stories in the last few years. So education, those inter 
intersectionality inequalities, you know, Muslim women getting doubly discriminated against and people from different ethnic minorities being discriminated against. And I think that in coming back, the next Scottish Parliament really has an opportunity to set a new frame. Um, our new leader, Anas Sarwar, is absolutely fantastic. And he had done a lot of work on Islamophobia in the last Parliament. I would like to see that report further developed and implemented because I think it's unfinished business. It's got to be for all of us as well. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. So, Angus, on to you. So there have been some very sensible things again said by my colleagues, which on such an important issue should again give some comfort to the questioner who was raising it. So not wanting to go over ground already covered, I think political parties have a role to play in all of this. I think we should aspire to make sure that our national parliament actually reflects the country that we live in and that the people that we have in that parliament also reflect the black and ethnic minority communities. And it's not a minority, but women. Um, as well, who have historically been underrepresented in, in uh, our democracy. I think we are going to see a change in the Scottish parliamentary uh, election. Uh, I know uh, all parties have been making efforts um, uh, in their own way to try and make sure they have more women candidates, make sure they have more black and minority ethnic candidates. And I'm, I'm very confident the SNP will have both a record number of, of women uh, and will have a record number of uh, a black and ethnic minority MSPs elected and I think that's a thoroughly good thing. I hope that's the case from other parties as well because uh, I think uh, mainstreaming the the challenges that we have around racism but then it, as has been raised as well it's more than just racism, uh, sectarianism, uh, anti-traveller sentiment, uh, the list goes on. The, you know this is a serious issue, it's, it has very deep roots and we need to take it seriously and the more in the parliament who are able to share uh, their lived experience on that, I think will, will help us uh, deal with it. Great, thank you everybody. Um, our final uh, voice for today comes from you. Uh, obviously there are so many different issues involved in this that we have not been able to touch upon. And so we're gonna give you two minutes each for a closing statement. We're gonna go in the reverse order to what we started in, starting with Sarah. I think once again, because of time, uh, we're going to uh, have to be quite strict on the two minutes, but Sarah, uh, for two minutes, the floor is absolutely yours. Although being unmuted might help. Don't, don't go there. I do this at least once in every hosting, so it's really embarrassing. Sorry about that. Um, That's okay. I think it's, it's been a really good discussion. I think the next Scottish Parliament is, is gonna to have to be about how do we focus on COVID recovery, that tackles our deep-seated inequalities, that creates jobs and opportunities for young people, whether it's leaving school or college or university, that tackles our climate crisis, that lets us get our health system remobilized, and, and not just getting um, the system open again, but investment in new infrastructure, whether it's the Eye Pavilion in Edinburgh, or getting the new staff that we need to tackle our cancer backlog. So the next Scottish Parliament for me, it's got to be about making the most of the powers that we've got. And we've talked about a lot of those powers today. And I think there's way more that we could be doing in terms of community renewables, cooperatively owned renewables, solar farms, heat networks, making our all of our infrastructure climate friendly. Um, one thing we haven't talked about today really is integrated public transport, affordable buses. Scottish Labour would like to see every young person under the age of 25 with free, free bus pass. I introduced the over 60s bus pass. 
The tragedy is the last few years, we've got less buses and less people are using our buses. So we'd like to see more locally owned buses and we'd like to see the, the maximum opportunity made of ScotRail actually being run by the Scottish Government. So it's about opportunities in the next Parliament and it's about our priorities. And there is so much that we need to do in the next Scottish Parliament to make sure that every young person's got a job, our new idea about our conservation core so that we can tackle the, the 15,000 trees we need built every year and tackling our peatlands so that we absorb the climate emissions and we don't make it worse. And I think the next Scottish Parliament's got to be a game changer. And for me, um, Scottish Labour, we're asking for both your votes, the list and the constituency. Thanks very much. Great. Miles Briggs of the Conservative Party. Thanks, uh, Jonas. And I think what we've, we've seen tonight is actually there's a lot of consensus on a number of issues, and that's where I think the Scottish Parliament is often at its best, when we can take forward issues at an election and make sure uh, we deliver in the next session. And one of the, the key issues will be recovery from this pandemic, and for young people especially. Um, you know, I want to thank young people for what they've done. You know, the whole lockdown has been horrendous for, for so many people, but for opportunities for young people in our country, um, they have just been completely taken away. So I think we all owe our young Scots a huge debt of gratitude and we need to make sure we deliver in the next parliament. Now, Scottish Conservatives have put forward a number of policies at this election uh, to do just that, but I think we need to listen to young people as well at this election. And so I hope people will uh, make their voice heard and actually feed into a lot of what the parties um, are talking about. Um, above all, we need to make sure that the next Scottish Parliament, though, um, does have a comprehensive plan for young people to support uh, our student sector, to support our universities, and to make sure that our young people are able to fulfil their potential um, and get the best possible career. Um, because we know that pandemic has impacted on our economy and our society, and we need to make sure we're 100% focused on addressing that. Um, it's been an honour to serve people in Edinburgh and Lothian over the last five years, and I hope people will put their confidence in me again, and especially to vote Conservative on the Peach at regional ballot paper. Um, so thanks very much. Great. Kate Nevins from the Green Party. Thank you very much. Um, so just to pick up on um, the last question around diversity in politics, um, we've no one pointed out, but we've never had a woman of colour in Parliament. Uh, also, at the rate we're going, it's going to take us another hundred years to reach gender parity in Scottish politics. And we also need more young people. Um, I think the average age of parliamentarians uh, of the last of the last bunch is around 51. No, it's not incredibly old, but that's definitely also not 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 young. No offence, twenty-one is over, over the age of fifty. Um, so, in terms of uh, the Scottish Greens, so we're one of the smaller parties in Scotland, but we are able to make big changes, and we have a really strong track record in Parliament. So, just in the last year during the pandemic, uh, the Scottish Greens we negotiated the right for student renters to hand in their notice to private landlords during the pandemic. We negotiated a ban on winter evictions. Uh, we've got free bus travel for people aged under 22 uh, starting this summer. And we also were the party driving the restoration of the 124,000 grades unfairly lowered. Uh, was that my internet? Going funny? No, no, that, that, that was just uh, kind of a 15, 20 second warning. Oh, okay, cool, cool. 
<laughs> so essentially, um, the polls are, are, are looking like the, the Greens are going to do really well in this uh, next election. We might double. So if that's the kind of uh, double our numbers in Parliament. So if that's the kind of things we can do uh, with five of us, imagine what we could do with 10 or 11, 12 uh, Green MSPs. Uh, and we know that the parliamentary elect on 6th May uh, will be sitting for, for the next five years, which is over Great. half the nine years we Ooh. have left to climate breakdown. So vote like our future depends on it. Great, Scott Beans. Thanks, Kate. Uh, Carol Ford from the Liberal Democrats for the closing statement. Okay. Well, the Scottish Liberal Democrats are going to put the recovery first and in the four key areas of education, health, the economy, and climate change. In education for, for young people, we will increase funding to universities and colleges to create more places for students and review the provision of bursaries and grants because the experience shows that it's actually the cost of day-to-day -day living which deters more disadvantaged pupils from applying to higher education. In Scotland, very sadly, we have half the percentage of students from disadvantaged backgrounds going into the university system. In fact, the OECD in the report that they released in 2015 did say that it was worse to be poor in Scotland than in any other part of the UK, which is not a good thing. In terms of the health system, we're going to have to tackle the backlog of physical illnesses and we're going to have to tackle the mental health crisis. And one of the things we would do is double the number of people training to be mental health counsellors and we would put money, uh, £5,000 per head, to allow people to go and make that training, make that change in their career path. We need to promote an economic recovery and that's incredibly important to young people who are going to graduate this year or in, in the near future and focusing on the worst hit industries and on the green economy. And I've mentioned some of the things that we would do. I have to say that um, I could comment that the SNP appear to have no ideas on how to promote the economy. I see today that they're actually offering a £50 million prize to anybody who can come up with an idea of how to transform Scotland's economy, which is quite a strange way to consider that you might um, run a country. So in short, what Scottish Liberal Democrats are going to do is simply concentrate on the issues that affect people's lives. The issue of poverty for children and for students, for older people, the issue of their health, physical, we have one of the shortest life expectancies in Europe, which is again, nothing to be proud of, and the issue of the economy. I think Scotland does need a strong liberal voice and the Scottish Liberal Democrats would provide that. Great, and for the final closing statement, Angus Robinson, before he gets a parking ticket, I'm sure has to wrap this up from his car, where he's currently speaking. Uh, well, Jonas, thank you very much for having me on, and I'll abuse the, the microphone at the end to say on behalf of, of all of us on the panel, um, I'm sure I speak for them all, regardless of our different political persuasions, thank you for giving us the opportunity to speak to your uh, listeners. I hope uh, there has been uh, more light than heat, uh, and people are uh, able to make the decisions about who they vote for a little bit uh, easier. Um, I think there are a couple of key takeaways that that everybody should be thinking about uh, when heading to the the uh, the postal vote when it drops um, uh, this week or um, on the sixth of May. Uh, you'll be electing not only a Scottish Parliament but 
a Scottish government and a first minister. And what this campaign has already shown very clearly and the opinion polls uh, bear this out is there is only one political party running in this election uh, to form a government of this country. There's only one political party with a leader who is running to become first minister. And there's only one political party that is asking to receive the mandate of the people so that we can decide about our country's future. And that's the SNP. And whilst I think it's tremendous that the SNP is polling about 50 or 51% in opinion polls, what makes me even prouder is that the polls show that nearly 70% of younger Scots will be voting and supporting the SNP in these elections. So to all of you listeners who are voting SNP, uh, thank you very much. It really, really matters. And it really matters that you use both of your votes because we need the strongest mandate possible because we know that Boris Johnson is opposed to Scottish decision-making uh, and democracy in terms of uh, our future uh, constitutional uh, arrangements. So your vote really counts. Vote for an SNP Scottish government. Vote for an SNP First Minister and Nicola Sturgeon who has shown uh, she is the most competent of our leaders, especially dealing with and hopefully coming out of sooner rather than later uh, the COVID uh, lockdown. Uh, and we are the leading party that trusts you enough to vote about the country's future. And for all of those reasons, I hope you'll be voting SNP in the forthcoming elections. Well, thank you very much for that. So with that, before Jonas wraps up here, I just want to say thank you to everyone for coming today. And I have to say, Angus, your internet connection in your car is impressive. It's a lot better than mine. And I'm in a home at the moment uh but i do just want to say thank you very much to everyone coming on today i gotta say for me and i'm just, i would say the listeners it was it was uh it was a lot of it was very interesting and very mind-provoking thought-provoking absolutely and i think it's it's fair to say uh and is still impartial to say that no matter who you vote for uh make sure you do vote um that will be something that's echoed by all candidates uh it's never, it's not at all too late to register to vote. Um, but for now, to all the candidates, thank you very, very much for contributing. That was a fantastic discussion and all of us here at Edinburgh really benefited from it. <laughs>